Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. Well, we're going to talk about holding back tonight. Um, uh, let me tell you a story about Dwight. Dwight was a guy that played on my minor peewee football team. And Dwight was a, was a superhuman, whatever, nine-year-old, whatever minor peewees are. I think it's about nine or so, nine or ten. And um, superhuman in the sense that he was stronger than most three kids that could could you know, get around him and try and tackle him or bring him down or block him or anything else. And he didn't even know it. In fact, he was a fairly mild-mannered guy. And we would run this, this drill in practice called the Oklahoma drill. And the Oklahoma drill is where two players lay down on their backs head-to-head. And the coach pitches the ball to one or the other and blows a whistle. And when he blows the whistle, of course, the, the, the rest of the team is, is, is made a wall around everybody so you can't get out. Kind of quarantined everybody off, and there's this kind of narrow corridor here. And the coach blows a whistle, and you're to get up to your feet. Whoever has the ball has got to get past the defensive player, and whoever's the defensive player doesn't have the ball has got to tackle the guy who has the ball. And so your goal is just to totally run over the defensive guy or the defensive guy to totally smash you and put you on your back, which Dwight did really well. I mean, he, he, just, he just would annihilate people in that drill and without even trying. I mean, it was effortless. He would just get up and, you know, turn around, and whoever it was would just pick him up off the air and slam him to the, to the turf. And he was, he was a machine, and he, he didn't realize his strength. He didn't realize how, 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 how much ability he had. And the coaches took him aside one day. He played linebacker for our team. Um, and the coaches took him aside one day and said, Dwight, you got to get some mean in you. you got to come, because you're not giving 110%. you got to give 110%. you gotta, you, you got to put, put your all into every tackle. Put your all into every block. Put your all into every play. And they got him worked up, and, you know, Dwight was foaming at the mouth. And we were, uh, <clears throat> we were in the scrimmage there, and, and I was playing quarterback, snapped the ball. I turned to the hand ball off to, the, to our tailback, and I knew what was going to happen because there's this wide-open hole, and there's Dwight at the end of the hole. So, you know, I hand the ball to his tailback, and, and he, he hits the guy, knocks his helmet off, knocks him out cold, knocks our tailback out cold. He's laying out on the ground like this. We've got to go get smelling salts to wake him up. And Dwight starts to cry. He starts to break down and cry like he, he, he knows he's hurt this guy. <laughs> and he, it just breaks his heart that he's hit this guy hard enough to hurt, hurt this guy. And so he leaves the practice field. And it takes the coaches two weeks to get him back, to talk him to come back and play him on the team. Because when he gave his all, and given his all, somebody, and, and it, it was that way when he played. I mean, when he gave 100%, somebody's going to get hurt. I mean, that's how hard he hit people. And he had to learn to, to, to gauge that and manage that against the opponent instead of her, his own team. But he had to learn and gauge that, and he would hold back in practice. Every practice, he would hold, you'd see him hold back on a hit not to have to hurt somebody because he didn't want to hurt his own team. It, he hurt worse looking at the guy on the ground than the guy did probably. But he had to hold back in practice. Buddy, when he'd get in the game, I mean, it was Katie bar the door, whoever had the ball. You know you were hit when you were hit by Dwight. But he had, he had to walk this fine line in practice versus a game versus, you know, to hold back for whatever, four or five days of practice a week. And when we got the game day, he would, he would let it all out at game day and, and the opponent would usually suffer for it or somebody would get carried off the field for it. 
this, this whole idea of living our life by faith, holding something from him, is totally foreign to the scripture. Yet that's what many of us do. Whether it's finances, or whether it's marriage, or whether it's parenting, or whether it's my job, or whether it's this relationship with these two or three friends that I have, or it's whatever it is, there, there, there are usually areas in most believers' life that we... It's not that we want to quarantine it from God oftentimes. We just think we can do it better than him. That's the bottom line truth. Is we think he, he either A, doesn't have time for this, or B, we know them, or we know this situation better than he does because we deal with it every day. And he doesn't know it best, and so we do. So we'll, we'll manage this area of our life, and he can have the church stuff. He can have the spiritual stuff. He can have the, he can have the babies being born stuff. He can have the, all the serious stuff. But we'll hold this over here, or hold this over this relationship over here, or this... And oftentimes we live our life thinking that's normal and that's the way it should be. And boy, Mark 14 just slaps that right in the face. And I, we're going to see that today in these three sections of, of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, turn to, to Mark 14 and we're going we're to read each section one at a time and look and see what we can glean from there. Um, first of all, in verses 1 um, through 11, let's read there. Now the Passover And the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured out perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, Three things I want us to see here in these first 11 verses in context of holding, not holding anything back in what I have. Uh, it first of all takes us to undesirable places. Look in verse 3. While in Bethany, Bethany was a, was a fairly, it was definitely a, a blue-collar town and a fairly poor town. Uh, it, was, it was a bedroom community to Jerusalem. It was about probably 12 miles or so from Jerusalem. But you could see Jerusalem from Bethany. And most of the folks in Bethany worked in Jerusalem. And it was really... Uh, very little work in Bethany. It was a small little town. Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, lived there in Bethany. But while in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar. Now, this was not done in this day and time for, for, a, for a rabbi, for a teacher, for anybody in the church, for anybody religious to hang out with a leper. It just wasn't done. It was totally taboo for several reasons. One was the, the, the physical nature of their being contagious physically. But beyond that, there were spiritual ramifications because lepers were seen to have leprosy because of their sin, not because of the leprosy. They were seen to, to be judged by God because of sin in their life. And so as judgment, God has given them leprosy to deal or as, as payment for some of their sin. They were seen as the chief sinners in the culture. Lepers were. And so here's Jesus hanging out with a contagious person, first of all, and the chief among sinners, second. He's in his house reclining, eating with him, sharing a meal with this guy. And this just wasn't done in this day and time. And in fact, um, many thought that lepers and those who associated with them were cursed. In fact, that was, that was the teaching of that day. And so Jesus had that probably to hang over his head for this, 
for this uh, meal that he shared at Simon's house. But there, there will be often times like that where, where in, in not holding anything back from him, that we're called to go to some undesirable places. That he calls us to go to some places that are uncomfortable, some places that are not places we would normally hang out. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know if that looks like a, um, heading to a bar or a, you know, a brothel of some kind or heading, heading to some place with, with normally the kinds of folks you wouldn't hang out with. But in, in going beyond where we normally go and not holding anything back from him, that also means our own pride. And our own pride is at stake when it comes to those places that we feel like, eh, I, don't, I don't know, if God really wants me to go there, he's going to have to give me this lightning bolt sign from heaven. And oftentimes that's what it, what it would take for us to move. But secondly, um, not only does it take us to undesirable places, but it causes us to make unwise investments. Four and five speak to this. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Um, this is Jesus saying, he, he comes back at, 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 at this rebuke, but this is her giving all she had, the best she had to him, and them coming back to rebuke her for doing that very thing. When it wasn't theirs to, to share, it was hers to share. Now, you need to realize that, and of course the scripture says this, that, that this, this box probably, or, 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 or container of some kind, alabaster box of perfume, was a year's worth of wages. Average wage in our culture now is $33,500 a year per person in America. You might make more than that or less than that, but that's the average wage in America per person. $33,000. I don't know. I've never seen a $33,000 bottle worth of perfume. Maybe you have. You ladies know that better than I do. But can you think in terms of, of something that would cost a person a year's wages? Not to mention the box. And the alabaster box was probably three to four months' wages just for the box. And she breaks open the box to get to the perfume and takes the, the year's worth of perfume and anoints Jesus with it. Um, there's something extremely symbolic about this gesture, but also uh, very telling about her own heart. The symbolic was he's about to be crucified. She's anointing his, him for burial, and he says that in just a moment. Nobody gets it, but he still says it. But, but, but the, 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 uh, the beauty in this story is that I'm bringing everything I have and the best I have to give to him, and I'm willing to sacrifice it to give to him. Um, here's the thing I want you to see here in this is that he defines what's of value and not us. And that's the beauty in this story because he rebukes them. He said, leave her alone. Do you not realize what she's doing? She's bringing the very best she has to anoint me even for prior to my burial. And, and, and in that rebuke, and that, we don't know if the 12 rebuked them or it just says people around, they um, rebuked him. So it could have been people in the home, could have been, could have been part of the disciples. We don't know who, who the rebuke came from, but he's, he rebukes the rebuke and says, leave her alone. She's bringing her best to me to give to me, to anoint me with oil. In essence, he's saying, I'll decide what's of value, not you. I'll decide what's worth breaking and giving to God, not you. That's true in our day. That's one of the things that I tried to allude to earlier in saying, boy, there are sometimes little pockets in our life that we hold back from him, and you can have all of that, but not this, and all of that, but not this. And he's saying to us, back to us, I'll decide what's of value. You think that's of value? I can take it away like that. You think that's a value? I can take that away like that too. You think that relationship's a value? You think this marriage is a value? You think the health of this child is a And he defines what is of value to us. And the quicker we get that message, the less anxiety we're going to live in life. Because when we start defining value, 
we start protecting it like it's our own. And the less anxiety we live with, the more, I mean, the more we give that to him, the less anxiety we live with, because if it's all his, it's his responsibility to deal with and take care of and protect and hold on to or let go if I never needed it in the first place. So if, he, if, we, if we get this concept that he defines and sustains value to us, um, boy, we'll get it. Um, this third thing, though, is, is holding nothing back to an unseen God. Look at 6 through 9. Leave her alone, he says. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. You will not always have me. In essence, he's speaking to them, but forwardly to us, sitting here tonight. You'll not always have me in your presence, he's saying. I'm, I'm, I'll be leaving here soon. They're not getting the, the story. So what he's doing is speaking ahead in time to you and I, sitting here tonight, to say, you'll not always have me, and he's speaking to us today. And, You don't physically have me here anymore. So while you have the opportunity, make the most of those opportunities. Um, And and that's true of our day. We we oftentimes miss opportunities that God brings along our path to minister to someone else, to help someone else, to be be Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to someone else. And we miss it. Um, And in doing so, miss a great opportunity. And and because we can't see him in it, um, to this unseen God, there is... um, um, as I say, she did what she could, and she took advantage of every opportunity she had while she had it. Great lesson for that in you and I, or to you and I. Because we have the opportunity now to worship him freely. Um, this is my opinion. I could be wrong. In fact, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But I think we're probably no more than three to four generations removed from my probably great-grandchildren worshiping God in secret in this country. If we trend like we're trending in our culture, um, and God tarries his coming, and I hope, I hope neither of those are true. I hope, we don't, I, hope, I hope you and I as believers can reverse the trend, and I hope his coming is sooner than that. But if, if, if those two things are the case, I really believe that my great-grandchildren will be scurrying to worship, or at least if not worshiping him in secret for the threat of their lives, they'll be worshiping him in secret so that they're not, they don't suffer the ridicule of, of the rest of the culture around them. And why do I say that? Well, there are really two or three reasons. One is the cultural pressure that's increasing. Um, m- many of you may or may not even be aware of this, but back in the early 90s, John Ashcroft was a senator from Missouri. There was, there was legislation introduced in the Senate uh, in the early 90s to begin to tax churches, which in our history to this point have, have been tax-exempt, their properties and assets and those kinds of things. And a senator, uh, whom I've forgotten who it is, I should go back, I should have researched that before I shared this story with you, but a senator brought forth legislation to begin to tax churches uh, and, and nonprofit organizations. And John Ashcroft, who is a pastor's son, uh, rallied the troops in the Senate, and it failed in the Senate. The same legislation was, was presented in the House. Ashcroft went over to the House talked to the leaders in the House, and it failed narrowly in the House. It failed narrowly in the Senate and narrowly in the House, but I'm going to tell you, it'll come back up again. It's going to come back up again. I don't know that we've got, the, I don't know that we've got folks in, in positions of leadership in Washington. I hope we do, but I'm not sure. The time will tell. And I don't know that we've got folks with spiritual spine to stand up like that anymore. Culturally, legislatively, those, that's, that's how things are trending in our culture. And not only that, but I, I see a weakened resolve in our, in our culture with, with each passing generation to stand up and, and, and make it be known that I'm, I belong to Christ. I'm unashamed of that, and 
you know, if that offends you, I apologize, but I belong to him, and I'm open with that. I see a weakening resolve not to belong to him necessarily or to know him, just for people to know it. Um, It's not offensive in our culture for, for... you know, those of a Muslim faith or those of a faith that you and I would, would disagree with, to stand and make their, their faith known, it'll be offensive. In fact, it's offensive now to many that you and I pre- profess Christ. And uh, with each passing generation, that offense is going to grow and grow and grow. As I say, I hope I'm wrong about that, but I think we're probably no less than three or four generations removed from worshiping him in secret in this country for, for fear of... of um, our influence, perhaps even for fear of breaking some law by that point. I hope I'm, I'm wrong in that, but that's, that's where things are trending. So while we have the opportunity for this unseen God to be seen and known and revealed to our culture, boy, we need to take advantage of it. And we need to sow into the generation behind us to take advantage of it. And they need to sow into the generation behind them to take advantage of it. While we have the opportunity, because the opportunity may not always, always be here, so while we have it, we need to most, make the most of it uh, as we can. Well, this idea of holding back in what I have poses a couple, two, three questions to me, perhaps to you. First is this, where am I too good to go for him? Where in our culture would I look? What circumstance or situation or location or relationship? Where am I too good to go for him? That may be the very place he's asking me to go. What do I have that's not worthy of him? In essence, what am I... What am I hoarding over here or hiding over here or protecting over here that he's not worthy of? In essence, I can't hand it to him and trust him with it. Well, those are hard questions to ask, but those are questions that are personal to each of us. And that's, you know, we're the ones who knows the answer to that, not someone else. And, and then finally, am I making the most of the opportunities I have? Only you and I can answer those questions personally for ourselves. Secondly, though, in this idea of not only what I have, but what I do, holding nothing back. Let's look at verses 32 to 41. uh, Chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here and pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, in this idea of what I do, I think he's calling us to model a life of compassion initially. And I think that's what he's talking about over here in verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was approaching death and his greatest emotion was sorrow, not fear. You find that interesting? Here he is, here he is uh, hours from death, and his emotion is sorrow. Well, why is that? I believe it's, well, first of all, I believe it's not fear because he's God. And he knows what's about to happen. He's not afraid of that. That's why he was sent to earth. But it's sorrow, I believe, because he's looking at these 12. 
And he's saying they're not ready. In fact, uh, look in verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. What's he praying about? He's, in pray- he's praying to his father about pushing the timeline back to say they're not ready. They're not ready for me to leave them. They need to see more of me, learn more of me, see more of my nature revealed to them. They're not ready. So his sorrow was for the 12. And, the, and, the, and, and praying that the hour might be moved is, God, can we push it? Not that you have a, I've always heard and been taught, God was, he's, he, Jesus was praying about a plan B. No, he wasn't. He, was, he, he knew he had to die, and he, weren't, he wasn't putting off dying necessarily for the sake of that he didn't want to die because fear was not his emotion. Sorrow was his emotion. So what is, what's, what's that tied to? It's tied to those 12 to say they're not ready. Let's ex- can we extend the timeline here for this? I know what the plan is, and I'm willing to go through with the plan, but can we extend the timeline? I'm turning loose 12 guys that aren't ready to be turned loose. And so the sorrow in his heart was what he was praying about there for them. Um, there was more to teach, more to learn, more to love, more to share, more to mentor, more to show them. A life of compassion that he felt for them. And that was really what this prayer was all about. Secondly, though, it was not only modeling a life of compassion, but a life of prayer. 35 and 36 talked to this. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and play, prayed that if possible, the, cup, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Praying for a new timeline. In essence, here's, here's a question to pose here. Why did Jesus need to pray? You ever thought about it? He's God. He knows everything. Why did he even need to pray to his Father about something he already knew was going to take place? Well, I believe it was, as I say, out of his sorrow and his compassion for these 12, but it was also to model to you and I, prayer is the vehicle. Prayer is the connection point. Prayer is the, prayer is the lifeline for us. And I think that was really more or less about two things. It was, first of all, about posture. Prayer puts us in a posture of submission. And it's, I think, not as important, and, and, and you may disagree with this, and that's fine. It's between you and God and between me and God. But I think prayer is, is less, has less to do about what we say and more to do about the attitude in the heart of our spirit in prayer. Because God really doesn't care what you say. To be honest with you, he already knows what you're going to say. And the scripture says he, he makes a process of communication, the Holy Spirit does on our behalf, with, with, with communication that's deeper than words to the Father. We're inadequate. Our vocabulary is inadequate to speak to a holy God. And so it's really not, of, uh, what we say is of little value anyway. It's more about this attitude and, and, and posture of, of submission and our position before him in humility. And he goes on a, ahead of them and, 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 and prays, I think, as a model to them, that you need to find yourself in a posture of submission before your holy God. You need to find yourself in a position of prayer. The second thing, though, is, is, that, um, is this idea of petition. Because he was praying, I believe, for the needs of the twelve. And as he's praying for the needs of the twelve, or as, as we're praying to a God about a need, whether it's a need for us, a need for our family, a need for our job, a need for a relationship, we're praying to a God about a need who knows all and who is all. And if we get the concept of that, our prayer will take a, a, a new life. Our prayer will take a new energy and, I, I think, a new voice. When we, when we realize that the very thing we're praying about, the only one who can do anything about it is him. Now, we think we can work circumstances out. But the only thing who can work things out in a lasting way, in a way that is for eternal good, is him. And so this model of prayer is not only about posture. It's about petition to the one who can do something about it. Most of the time, our complaints to him of God, why don't you and will you and 
And when will you? Our complaints to him are meaningless. What he wants to see in us is someone who has a heart of submission and can come to him in belief that the one we're praying to and asking to take care of the situation can do it and will. We just saw that last week. Um, the, this idea of prayer as being the, the lifeline for us is the very thing I think he took these three to Gethsemane to see. I want you to see this. I'm praying for you. Not only am I praying for you, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to hear. I'm, my prayer, my petition is for you, but I'm praying for you to see how I pray, what I pray for, and how I pray. I think they learned a great lesson from that, and, and uh, we, we could too if we would see that. The third thing, though, is this, is not only modeling a life of compassion and a life of prayer, but modeling a life of awareness. A life of awareness. Look at verse 37. He returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? What's this command? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He, in essence, is saying to them, be aware and engaged in what's going on around you. And realize that prayer, that's what watch is about. And, and that prayer is about our vehicle to get something done about what's going on around us. To watch and pray. That sense of awareness, we talked about this a little bit last week in, 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 in the signs of the times of, of our getting closer to the, to, to, the, to the time when Christ will return. And, and the more intense our lives should be and the more aware our lives should be because we realize that we could be the generation who witnesses his return. There should be a heightened sense of awareness that we live with. That's the very thing he's, he's talking to them as he comes back from praying. He said, hey, what are you doing? Wake up. Watch. Pay attention to what's going on around you. In fact, they didn't see it uh, happening here in just a few moments, but in a very few moments, they're going to all, all run from him in abandonment. The soldiers are coming with lights and swords and knives, and, and we see here, if you'll read through the end of this chapter, they, they totally vanish when, the, <laughs> when it gets really, gets really hard. So what he's, what he's sharing with them is preparation for what's about to happen, and they can't even see it. Great advice for you and I to watch and pray, to be aware of our circumstances, to be aware of our surroundings, to be aware of our culture, to be aware of the enemy and the fact that the scripture says he's a roaring lion. He's seeking to devour us. He wants to eat us alive. If we're not aware of what the, how the enemy works around us and is it work in our culture, how can we defend against it? We've got to be aware of his ways. We've got to be aware of some of his methods and how he begins to, to, to penetrate our world so that he can defeat our, our witness and our effectiveness. And if we're not... We'll miss it. Now, here's what I, uh, beyond that, I, I think he wants us to see, and that is in, in telling them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be aware and petition the one who can do something about it. Here's what I, what I probably a deeper thing that I, I think he's, he wants us to see, and I think he probably wanted them to see. God is at work in you. Most people can see that. Most believers you talk to realize, yeah, God's got a plan for me. And I realize that things happen around me for what God's doing, what he's trying to do in me. And I, and I, I want to get it. I want to see it. I want to understand it. I don't get it all. Sometimes I see a little bit. I see a nugget there, nugget there, what God's... But I know he's, do, I know he's at work in me. I know he's trying to do something to me. Most believers are aware of that. Beyond that, though, fewer are aware that God is at work around them. What I mean by that is he's at work not only in me, but in her and in him and in her and... And through this network of, of believers that he's placed us within the sphere of influence of, he can do things collectively through us. We draw strength from each other to be able to do that. But he can do things collectively through us that we don't have the strength and capability to do on our own. So God is not only at work in us, but he is at work around us. 
through collectively through the lives of other believers. That's what one of the great strengths of church. That's why we meet. That's why we draw together the strength from each other as church, from his word and from fellowship with each other that he's, he's, in, he's working in her life too. And I see what God's life, doing in his life too. And I see what God's done over there in her life too. And we draw strength from that. It helps us realize, yeah, God's not only at work in me, but he's at work around me. Here's the third thing, though, that I think even fewer recognize is that God is at work through me. Not only is he at work in me, and I can see him at work around me from time to time, but work through me? God can't do anything with me. I mean, are you serious? That's, that's the work of the clergy, isn't it? Isn't that the work? That's what Jerry, people like Jerry King are supposed to do. God work, he, He's at work through those kind of people. God's at work through each one of us. He's placed each one of us within a sphere of influence of other folks. For many, that's around 200. I don't know what your world is like. But for most folks, you have influence on a regular basis with around 200 people. I wonder of those 200 people in your world, if they know really who has your heart. If they really know who you belong to, what's precious to you, what's of value to you. When you start to see God at work in you, you draw strength from that. When you start to see God at work around you in the lives of other believers, well, we draw even more strength from that. But when we can start to see God at work through us into the lives of those folks within our sphere of influence, then it starts to become powerful. And we start to see, man, a holy God, the God of the universe, has got something to do in me, around me, and through me to him, to her, to her, to him. And what an incredible thing. So I think that's all together and then some what he's saying. And watch and pray. Be aware of what's going on around you. You're, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're about to miss one of the most pivotal points in history. Wake up. Wake up and see that what's going on around you. All the things that I've shared with you these last few weeks is leading up to this, and you're going to miss it. Wake up and see it. Now, here's kind of a couple of follow-up questions to this idea of, of what we do, and that is, and I don't, I don't know necessarily that the, that the disciples felt this way, but they certainly acted this way, and that's this. Have I reached a point of spiritual arrival to where I get it? Or is there more? And you, as I say, you have to answer that question for yourself of whether I've, I've spiritually plateaued and I understand most things that God wants me to get and I, I understand most things about his word or, or you may be here and you think, boy, there's more. Or you may be like me and think, well, I'm here, but there's way more than I see. There's way more than I understand. There's way more than I can get my arms, my heart, my mind around. And so have we reached the point of spiritual arrival that we don't need to watch and pray anymore? Or are we still hungry and we realize, man, I got a lot to learn. I got a lot to get. I don't get my I can't get my mind around the nature of God all the time. And I want to see that. And I realize He wants me to see that. I need to get that. Second question is this is, is when crisis and suffering come, they're about to come in moments, mere moments here for these twelve because he's about to be arrested and taken off from them, and they all scatter. When crisis and hurt and heartache and suffering and you fill in the blank, whatever it looks like, when those things start to come, is our first reaction panic or prayer? That's what he was trying to get them to see. Watch and pray. Don't panic. Don't panic when crisis comes. Don't panic when hurt comes. Don't start playing the blame game. Why did this happen? It's her fault. It's his fault. It's God's fault. It's his. Don't do that. Don't panic. Start to pray. Start to, start to beckon God to say, show me what I need to see in this. Because I realize that this is for a reason. And it isn't just to beat me up and beat me down. You want me to see something here. You want me to see something in the circumstances that are going on. 
The final question as it relates to this and it's, that I've asked myself is, is there a spiritual complacency that has numbed our spiritual senses or is, this, is there still an edge to our faith? Um, and I don't think necessarily that's an age thing. Most people probably do to think, boy, the, the younger Christian, that, that, that Christian that are in their teens or 20s, they're the ones that really should have an edge. They're the ones that really should have a hunger to change their world, to change our world. And I, I think it's garbage, to be honest with you. I think that's straight from the enemy. That's convenient talk for you and I. But I think, I think there should still be an edge to somebody in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. I think there should be an edge to our faith to say, man, I don't know it all. And I don't get it all. But I realize that God's got me in a world. He's got me in a place for somebody to see him out of my life. He's not through with me, not by any stretch. He'll be through with me when I'm dead. Until I'm dead, he's not through with me. There are still some things going on. I shared with you one, one time about a, a relationship uh, or a conversation with my dad a couple of years before he died about you know, uh, his being convicted by a sermon or a message that he heard me share, asking, will anybody be in heaven because of you? And he realized that, that he had never walked across the street to talk to the guy across the street about his faith. So he does that. As, you know, in his 70s, walks across the street and asks Roy Hastings, do, do you know Jesus as your Savior? God is not through with us. He's not through with us. There should be an edge to our faith to realize, man, there's still some rough edges around me that need to be polished and refined and worked. And I need to realize that. I'm really, I'm not on some shelf someplace. And that's not something for the younger folks to do. That's something for me to do. It's something God's calling us to do, all of us to do. Finally, let's look at this idea in these verses uh, in the middle that we've, we, we didn't read yet of this idea of, of holding nothing back in who I am. Look at verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus Disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, and make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It's one of the twelve, he replied. The one who dips the bread in the bowl with me, and the Son of Man will go, just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Here's what I think he wants us to see in this above all else, and that's this. And we're about to come together in the Lord's table and share together in that. And we can't come here in pride. We just simply can't. We can't come here with a sense of entitlement. We can't come to him or to his table in that regard because we have nothing of of value to offer. Um, In in, in this great lesson of this this gal breaking her, her, her prized possession of her perfume, to anoint him. That was totally selfless on her part. Totally selfless. She wasn't doing that to be noticed. She was doing that because God was in her house. And she was doing that as a, as a sacrifice and an offering to him. And we can only come to him in humility. And it's, uh, in fact, do you, see this? do you see this theme taking place in Mark? As we've walked through, the, especially these last probably four or five chapters, of, of you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. And Whoever wants to be first, he's the one who really should be last. 
You see this theme coming? There's a, we can't come to him in pride. He simply will not accept us that way. We have to come to him in denial. We have to come to him in sacrifice. We have to come to him as a servant. We have to come to him in a, in a, in a petition, in a position of prayer. We have to come to him in submission. We can't come to him in pride. Um, in fact, how dare we come to him thinking he owes us something? How dare we come to his table thinking, God owes me some kind of blessing here. I've, I've, I really had a rough week. And, and, you know, and that's, I hope church is a hospital for you. I really do. I hope, I hope when we meet here on Sundays that God does something in your heart and in your spirit that, that revitalizes you and, and gives you energy spiritually to, to kind of face a hard place. But we shouldn't come to this place thinking God owes us something. We shouldn't come to this place or to this table or to, to a meeting here at church thinking, man, God, you've, uh, I'm living, I'm, 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 I'm trenching, toughing it out in the trenches for you. You've got to come through for me. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing, but he's given us everything. Wow. He owes us nothing, but he's given us everything. So here's the closing question that, that I think we're forced to ask ourselves, and that is this. How is it that um, this Jesus, who gave his all for me, what does he want from me? He gave his all for me. Now, what does he want from me? And the answer really from this, the entirety of Mark chapter 14 is this. He wants it all. He wants it all, whatever that looks like. Whether that looks like this little corner that I've been holding on to or hoarding or protecting or you know, positioning over here, he wants it all. In fact, he wants it all or nothing at all, to be honest. Um, and that's a hard place for us sometimes, isn't it? It's a hard place depending on how we've been raised and, and what we've done without or what we've done with, how God has worked ahead of us, how God has not, how we've seen God show up, how we haven't. Whether our faith is, has really deep roots or whether it's still pretty shallow, sometimes it can be really hard to hand all of that over and say, I can do nothing with any of this. Um, in fact, I give you all of that. And that's really at a position where he wants us to be. Because he's given us all, and he wants all in return. In fact, that's what he demands. We're going to share together here in just a moment around his table, and that's the, the scripture that we're going to share together uh, here from the, the remainder of here of, of Mark 14. And I hope as you come this, this way in just a moment to, to, to share together and, and celebrate the Lord's Death, his, his, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrifice for us, his shed blood for us, his body given for us. I hope as you come to do that, you, you kind of come in light of this scripture that we've looked at tonight to say, boy, if I'm holding something back, it's high time my attitude starts to change. Because I realize that in holding back, I'm missing some things of value, of incredible value that's, that's in an alabaster box that I can't see until I give everything to him. And he'll break it open and say, here's, here's, why, here's why you did that. Here's, here's, here's how you make sense of all of that. And when I start holding back this and holding back that and holding back the other thing, well, I miss great lessons in life that only can be seen from the master teacher, that can only be seen from the master textbook. But when I see them, then it energizes my faith. And I, I, my, my, my faith roots start to grow deeper. I can start to withstand some storms easier than I could. Before I can start to understand some things that I used to be in the dark about that used to be real great. I mean, I used to look at it like, how is God in any of that? 
And I can start to see some things that are happening even in a lot of our culture as we looked at last week of what's going on around our world to say, God's in that. <laughs> He's probably in that. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. That's... And I start to see things happening around me in my world that start to make sense now. And I start to see God at work all around me. I understand God's not just at work in me anymore. He's at work around me and He wants to work through me. When that starts to make sense to me, my life starts to come alive spiritually. I start to be energized in the sense that, man, there's something greater and deeper and farther and more than I've ever experienced for him. He wants that for me. I'm the one that's missed it. Why? Because I've been holding back. I've been holding back this little thing, that little thing. And he's saying, let me have that. I could do better with it than you've done. Let me have that. I want all of what you've got. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.